Blog Talk Radio. Welcoming everybody back to the show. This is Tamara Westwood, and uh, I'm excited. I am super excited with this show because Dr. Hart is dear to my heart. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you why. Um, This man is a pioneer. He is someone who has come up in the toughest neighborhood in Miami. Um, Similar to myself, I grew up in and raised my family in South Central, uh, the jungle area, right in that time period where they were pumping drugs into our neighborhoods and creating all kinds of issues for our people. But we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But I first want to introduce the man, Dr. Carl Hart. He's the author of High Price, The Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything That You Know about drugs and society. Now, as I mentioned, um, you know, young Hart, <laughs> young Carl uh, grew up in an, an area uh, that was challenging, and um, certainly there were a lot of uh, things against him. But he has actually grown up to utilize his experiences and the things that he's seen in his life to use academia to help to support and to bring awareness to what's true about addiction and the societal ills that actually bring it about. So enough of my talking and enough of my build-up. I want to get in and talk to the man. Welcome to Illuminations Media Network, Dr. Hart. Thank you for having me. Um, You know, as we know, that when we can get scientific proof uh, for change, then we can actually change policy. Is that what you've seen so far with your with no. your work? No, no, it's kind of like the opposite, right? When we mm. if people, you know, science is important. Of course, I, I'm a scientist, and I, I believe in science. I think science is the great equalizer because it's like it doesn't matter if you have money or no money or charismatic or not. The evidence is all that really matters in science. So that's a beautiful equalizer. But oftentimes when it comes to public policy on a wide range of things, including drugs, like I study drugs, um, the science and evidence has been there for years. But it's not a matter of just evidence. You have to have the general population has has to be informed such that they put pressure on their policy makers. And so the policy makers can even know the evidence, but they're not going to act on it unless the people make them act on it. Uh, we can think about, like you were pointing out nicely, that you grew up in South Central, I grew up in Miami. All of those those neighborhoods are considered sort of resource poor, and 
uh, they, there's a lot of negative things that have been said, but you know, obviously there are so much positive things that come out of those places. Uh, that's why I am the person I am today. I like to believe, but in our community, we had people who were calling for the police on drug dealers and all of this sort of thing, um, and they also were fooled into believing that drugs were their problem. Even though many of us in science, they knew for some time that the problem weren't drugs. The problem was that you don't have no damn jobs. You are you have a poor and lack of education. You have racial discrimination. You have all of these things that are much bigger problems. And evidence and science has always known that. But the communities uh, were hoodwinked and fooled, and sometimes just they, people just don't know uh, how to think about these things. So um, the evidence can be there. There, but if the people don't have access to it or an understanding of it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Hart, you are um, a professor at Columbia University, and you have a captive audience in your student body. <laughs> and so you are able to mold young minds and to bring awareness. Um, how has that been for you? Uh, it, it's been great. Uh, so you should understand too. Let's be clear. Being at a place like like Columbia is beautiful for a number of reasons. But one of the most important reasons for me is just simply it helps to sharpen my thinking. I mean, my colleagues, my students, um, people with whom I interact, the researchers in this environment, they just help to sharpen my thinking, um, and that's the major sort of benefit for me in these spaces. But in terms of like a captive audience, uh, I don't think of this place as my sort of major captive audience. I also teach in Sing Sing, which is one of the maximum, one of the maximum security prisons in New York State. I love those students too, and that's a sort of captive audience, but I get different things from these different sort of students. And I also like to think of the United States and the globe, um, people around the globe, uh, as my students, too, um, because a number of people read my stuff or they see me in interviews, and I hope that it's it's helpful. Um, so is my sort of reach or my uh, favorite place uh, for teaching isn't necessarily Columbia, um, but Columbia uh, serves an important role for me largely to help sharpen my thinking. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So very wise man and oh, so humble. I so appreciate that. And, you know, one thing that I, I noticed in reading your book, and uh, we, you speak about um, the disease of drug hysteria and propaganda. You know, we all remember the reefer madness movies. We, um, we, can, we can look at prohibition, you know, um, you know, in the in the twenties and the thirties of alcohol and, and all these things that the people have have created, you know, around addiction. And so when we think about this whole idea of someone being coming addicted or dependent or needing some sort of a substance or, or even some sort of an action or activity, um, what is addiction? And and what have you found? Uh, about addiction in your in your scientific studies. 
Yeah, I'm glad you raised this issue about addiction because a number of people, when they look at my work, they think about addiction. Um, I'll, I'll answer the question first, and then we'll have a larger question, uh, discussion about addiction. Addiction, uh, as we define it in science and medicine, is quite simple. It's just when people are using a substance, in this case drugs, that's what we're talking about, they're using a substance to the point of the substance disrupting their psychosocial functioning, meaning it's disrupting their work, their family relationships, other relationships that are meaningful in their life. Uh, they have had a number of unsuccessful attempts to cut down or quit their drug use. They might have some physiological symptoms like when they stop using the drug, you might see some tolerance. Uh, you might see people putting themselves in harm's way when they're intoxicated with the substance, like driving while intoxicated. A number of these sorts of things. There's a list of 11 sort of symptoms, and then the person has to endorse uh, a few of those symptoms in order to meet criteria for this thing we're calling addiction. That's how we define it in science. Now, that's an important thing because sometimes when people talk about addiction in the general population, they simply mean, oh, I'm addicted to shopping, I'm a sex addict, I'm this, and that just because you like something, they say that's, a, that's, a, that's an addict. But in science and medicine, it has to disrupt your psychosocial functioning, and it has to cause you distress about that. Okay. So now that's yeah. that's how we define addiction. Now, if we if we think about my work in general, it's important for us to know that my work is not limited to addiction because if it was simply limited to addiction, I would be bored as hell because there are far more interesting things about drugs than addiction. Addiction is one of the sort of uh, minority of uh, effects or symptoms, symptoms that happen after you're using drugs or in relation to drug use. That is, the vast majority of people who use drugs don't become addicted. You know, So even when we take a drug like um, heroin, um, when we think about, about heroin, about a quarter of the people who have used heroin that will become addict, addicted. That is 25%. That means that 75% of people who use heroin are not addicted and will not become addicted. The vast majority will not become addicted. And we can think about cocaine, about 20% will become addicted, 15 to 20%. We can think about something like marijuana, about 10% might become addicted. But when we think about tobacco, a third, that's the highest, a third of the people who smoke tobacco will become addicted. So that's the highest of all of these drugs. But that's not the one that we get crazy about. We get crazy about heroin, crack cocaine, or something else. Um, but the major point that I'm trying to make here is that addiction is not the only effect related to drugs and the majority of people who use drugs don't become addicted. So why are we always talking about drug addiction? Well, we talk about drug addiction because it makes it's easier to sell newspapers. It's easier to make documentary films about drugs and drug addiction. It's easier to make feature films about addiction. And you can do some sexy sort of things with addiction. But really, it, it's not reality. And people who do who use drugs, including myself, are like, what the what's going on? Why that's not my experience. That's not most people' experience. So why are we stuck here? I mean, right. it's true when I first started, started studying drugs, I st started to study drug addiction because I thought that's where the action was. I thought that's what we should be doing. And, and that had limited me 
from understanding all of these potential positive effects related to drugs. Like drugs help people perform better in so many occasions. Um, our presidents, for example, all of our presidents in modern time are prescribed stimulants and sedatives. We're talking about things like methamphetamine amphetamines, um, and we're talking about sedatives uh, like uh, the benzodiazepine or barbiturates that they were once prescribed. But all of these things help them function better. When we think about people who go see art shows like musicians or what have you, you can pretty much bet on the fact that your favorite entertainers, when they're doing concerts, I can almost assure you that they have some stimulant on board so you can have a good time, so they can be at their peak. Um, drug use is, we use drugs, uh, many of our military soldiers are on stimulants and sedatives. And so um, to talk only about addiction is uh, tunnel visioned and narrow minded, and that's what the public has been, uh, that's how the public has been when it comes to drugs. Yes. So there's a difference here between drug use and drug abuse. Yes, indeed. That's a major difference, and that's an important point. Um, uh, so when we, if we go to the reframe of drug addiction when we're talking about drug use, then um, then we know that we have been hoodwinked. Mm-hmm. And and it's and like you're speaking of it is it is sexy and uh it uh, it sparks action and it makes money. So it's very, very interesting yeah. for people. People like drama. <laughs> yes. No, that's yeah. a great point. It's a great point and you it makes money. That's absolutely true because mm-hmm. if we think about the current so called opioid crises, um uh, we talk about putting money into two places the treatment providers and law enforcement. I said most of the people who use opioids don't become addicted. So why is all this money going into this treatment? And then you'd be then we're, we're thinking about the types of treatment, and that's a whole other question, too, because there's a problem there. And then we got law enforcement. So those two groups, those two entities are getting paid on the one hand. And uh, the thing that's even more pernicious about this is that law enforcement has to show results. And the results we're talking about are arrests. And when we think about arrests for drugs, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about black and brown people. And so mm-hmm. that makes it even more pernicious. Yeah. So it's it's being used as a tool for for racism. Absolutely. Yeah. It's used as just one of the multiple tools that we have in our armamentarium here in the United States to uh, perpetuate racial discrimination. Mhm. Well, you know, on this point, I don't want to belabor it, but I, I just want to make sure that our listeners um, who haven't had a chance to read your book, High Price, as of yet, I know that everybody is going to run out immediately, go to Amazon or wherever you're going, get this book. <laughs> but I want to highlight um, one of your research um, uh, projects that you did on rats. I, I think this is one of your earlier ones. where. You focused on uh, the social connection, you know, between uh, rats becoming addicted to whatever substance, um, rats that are in an unnatural environment versus those who are living in a normal kind of uh, rat city, you know, where they have other rats to associate with, mate with, they have normal food, um, and then the other rats who are 
isolated. Can you give us some details about that? I, I thought that was just a fascinating study. Yeah, so the study I think you're talking about, it, it actually wasn't mine. It was done, I described it in High Pressure Ray, but it was done mm-hmm. by a researcher from um, Vancouver, Canada, named uh, Bruce Alexander, and it's kind of uh, popularly referred to as a rat park. Um, so what Bruce did was clever. He just uh, kind of... Uh, what he did was he raised two groups of rats, one group in isolation and then another group um, uh, with other rats and in an enriched environment where they had sweet treats, toys, other rats to hang out with and play with. And then both sets of rats were taught how to uh, take morphine from a bottle, basically. What he found was that the rats who were raised in isolation and in isolation took more morphine than the guys who were raised in this enriched environment. So it told him that uh, drug use can be impacted depending upon the social environment under which the drug use occurs. Now, this kind of work has been extended or it was based, well, I should go back to say what it was based on. It was based on this notion. uh, People had demonstrated in rats as well as non-human primates that when you give a rat access, uh, intravenous access, so they press a lever, lever and they receive intravenous injections of cocaine, amphetamine, or heroin, one of the sort of fun drugs. When you give them unlimited access to these drugs, these rats or non-human primates would self-administer the drug until they killed themselves. And then some people concluded from that that these drugs are so addictive, you cannot give people access to it because they will kill themselves. And so Bruce's work, Bruce Alexander's work, showed that no, it's not that simple. The problem was the previous studies only had the animals in the cage with a lever and nothing else to do. And Bruce showed in his work that when you allow animals to be in an enriched environment, you don't get this killing. The animals don't kill themselves. In fact, they barely take the drug because they have these other things to do. Then we did a similar study in humans where we brought people who met criteria for crack cocaine addiction into the lab, and we gave them a choice between crack, a hit of crack, and a certain amount of money. Um, and when you increase the amount of money, they take they don't even take any of the drug. Again, this supports the notion that when people have attractive alternatives or enriched environments, they don't take drug. They instead engage in these other activities. Mm-hmm. And that speaks directly to a lot of our underserved inner city environments where many of the of the um, opportunities just aren't there. You know, people who are under oppression are not able to uh, to fully uh, actualize themselves, their strengths, you know, their abilities, their intellect. Um, and, and when we are oppressed, would we be more likely to turn to substances? Yeah, so um, just to clarify something, we you don't have to say inner cities because it's not only inner cities, it's just 
places that are deprived. I mean, because we're right. saying, I mean, when you think about a place like Ferguson, Missouri, it's not inner city, but certainly you see these same sort of effects. And then you can think about what's happening with the opioids. Right now, in, in rural white America, they're seeing the same sort of thing. So yeah. you're absolutely yeah. right. When people are deprived and they don't have many opportunities, and if you have access to psychoactive drugs, particularly psychoactive drugs that produce euphoria, what do you expect to get? This is what you will get. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's almost a fertile ground when yeah. you have a, a people, you know, who are not able to access the things that they truly want in life. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, and in your research, um, comorbidity, what do you see between already pre-existing mental illness and uh, addiction? Is there a higher prevalence than what you found? Oh, yeah. So, like, uh, when we think about reasons why people are addicted, uh, there's a high number of people who meet criteria for addicted also have co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, things like anxiety, mm -hmm. schizophrenia, depression, those sorts of things. So that's a big predictor. Another predictive, of course, is when people don't have opportunities, jobs, and all of those things. But comorbidity is huge, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, Dr. Hart, I, I wrote a paper um, for my undergrad, and it, it spoke to um, looking at ways of creating uh, new drug policy, creating reform, you know, that's going to actually work for our society. And I did some research about uh, what's going on in Portugal, and they're doing a lot of uh, good work there. And for you... Um, with all that you've studied and, and everything that you have um, created activism around, in a perfect world, if you could get all the legislation to back it, what would be the, the ideal drug reform policy? What would that look like? Yeah, in the United States, uh, it was first of all you have to change the way we educate about drugs. So we've just been lying to people about drugs. Uh, for yeah. example, I, I have children, and so uh, one who is still in high school. So, but but throughout their education, it's like I wouldn't allow people to talk to them about drugs because they were not getting telling them any bullshit about drugs or misinformation. It wasn't going for that. Mostly, mm -hmm. what happens in schools about drugs education is just crap, wrong incomplete, yeah. whatever. So you and have to change. just say no, right? Yeah, just say no. Essentially, it comes back in new form. So you, we have to completely change that, and I would completely change how we do that, um, one. And then as it comes to, like, how we deal with policy, I would immediately decriminalize all drugs, just like they've done in Portugal, the Czech Republic, Spain, and other countries around the globe. That means that no one will go to jail anymore for possessing drugs for their personal use. That just won't happen anymore in the United States. If I was, if I was a person running the policy. Now, the major concern that I have, however, one of the major concerns that I have, however, about drugs is that sometimes when people buy street drugs, they contain uh, impurities, adulterants, things that are not what the person is seeking. And so we have to deal with that issue. And the only way, well, one of the more efficient ways of dealing with that is to regulate the drug market like we regulated the alcohol market. And so I would be working towards regulating the market so that we keep people safe. So 
change the education, start with decriminalization, working for drug regulation such that everything is treated like alcohol, and go from there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Time flies. Um, you know, in the last few moments that we have, uh, you mentioned um, that the education system should not be teaching our children about drugs. But as parents, you know, how do we talk to our kids about drugs? Yeah, so when you say kids, um, I'm thinking of high school and below. Um, mm-hmm. So when we think about drug use, uh, drug use starts typically in high school. That's in general. If your kid is starting before high school, you have bigger problems than drugs. You have mm-hmm. some supervision issues that you've got to really deal with. That's you as a parent. And so my job as a drug educator or an educator is not to replace you as a parent. You still have to do your job. Got that clear. Now let's think about high school drug use. High school drug use, there are three drugs that high school students use primarily. Everything else is almost non-existent, although you know you will have like 0.1% of all the students trying some other drugs that I'm not mentioning. But the major drugs are tobacco, alcohol, and marijuana, and that's where the drug drug education will focus. We think about how we educate people about alcohol. We worry about the, con- the concerns that we have about alcohol. It's people getting drunk, people being taken advantage of, particularly uh, sometimes girls taken advantage of because they were intoxicated or the, the, the uh, perpetrator was intoxicated. So you want to teach people about the, the sort of uh, uh, effects of alcohol that might impair drug judgment on the what condition that happens. That's what you teach about alcohol. It's about tobacco. You want to teach them about, well, it's cool now, but you know you have to really be concerned about um, smoking it on a daily basis, multiple cigarettes, because it increases the likelihood that you become dependent or addicted to this substance. Tobacco, with marijuana, similar to alcohol, you want to help people identify the real concerns. Real concerns is that if you're a novice, you take too much of it, you might get extremely anxious and paranoid. It's going to be okay. You just chill out and be with people who have some experience so they can help keep you calm because it's going to be okay. Those are the major sort of things. I mean, and you want to make sure when they're smoking tobacco or marijuana, you just want to make sure they're doing it in the most safe way. That is, try and get them to vape vaporize as opposed to smoking in traditional way because vaporizing will decrease the toxicity to the lungs. So those are the major sort of problems or issues that you will be talking about with drug education with young people. Yeah. Real talk. Well, this has been amazing, Dr. Hart. I'm I'm so, again, grateful that you took the time to, to share your wisdom with our listeners. So the main takeaway from our very insightful interview with Dr. Carl Hart is that drugs aren't going anywhere. But our main goal in our society is to keep people safe and also to put pressure on our politicians to create policies that cannot be used against us as tools of racism. We all recognize that many impoverished groups no matter what color, whether they're Asian, Hispanic, black, these groups, just like all human beings, need to have opportunity. And when you have oppression, poverty, and lack of opportunity, gangs are going to form and gangs are going to engage in drug trafficking, 
trade and the use of illegal substances. And by putting pressure with unfair law, you're going to exasperate that issue rather than blot it out. So the whole war on drugs is a creator of this particular problem. From the chemical muse by Dr. David Hillman, historical documentation of substance use spans ages from the ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and other high-status ancient world people. They use things that created hallucinations to alter their consciousness as religious sacraments in order to commune with their gods. And today, we also use drugs to enhance our everyday lives, from the caffeine and the coffee we drink in the morning to wake up, to the beer or wine that we drink during the game, to that champagne that we toast with at the wedding, and Grandpa's Copenhagen-filled pipes and the cigarettes that we smoke when we take our breaks at work. And let's not forget the marijuana joint that's passed around at a party. These are all common substances that are used on a daily basis by law-abiding citizens. And we're all perfectly aware of how harmful alcohol is and how legal it is and how many people have lost their lives, yet it's still very legal and very socially accepted. Clearly, trying to create a drug-free world is not going to happen. As prohibition has proven, there's no way to stop people. Another aspect is to look at why some become dependent and others don't. Why others are able to use it to enhance their lives and others use it and it destroys their lives. More food for thought and critical thinking. You know, I just invite everybody, go out right now. (laughs) Go get the book, High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery that Challenges Everything That You Think That You Know About Drugs and Society. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Peace and blessings. This is Tamara West with your host, signing off.